spearheaded by the likes of men like Schleiermacher and Bultmann and Tillich, you can tell they're all from Germany, right? Um, <laughs> essential doctrines like the, the creation of, of all that we know, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus were jettisoned in many churches for the sake of saving Christianity. Now, many mainline liberal denominations, even in the Western world today, have fallen in line with this sort of thinking, compromising not only key essential doctrines, but morals as well. And so the question that I have for us is this. Does this really, does this really help the church's witness? Does compromise really make people want to become Christians? Well, I find a man by the name of Richard Rorty. You can see his quote on the screen behind me. He is an American postmodern philosopher and by no means a friend of Christianity. He writes on liberal theology. He first describes what liberal theology does. He says, I am delighted that liberal theologians do their best to do what Pio Nono, which is Pope Pius from the Catholic Church, said shouldn't be done. To try to accommodate Christianity to modern science and modern culture and democratic society. He writes, If I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled at the wishy-washiness of their version of the Christian faith. And then he comments on what will happen when Christianity becomes too watered down He says this, maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy, now hear this, that nobody will be interested in being a Christian anymore. Friends, hear the words of Richard Rory, who is an ardent unbeliever. He believes that the church that compromises will in actuality not save Christianity. But it will eventually do what? It will eventually kill it. So friends, what do you think Jesus thinks about a church that compromises on its doctrines and compromises on its living in order to somehow accommodate or even reach a pagan culture around it? Well, we'll get the answer to that in our letter this morning, the third letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, as Jesus writes to the church in the city of Pergamum. I call it a witnessing church, yet a compromising church. It is a witnessing church, but it is a compromising church. Friends, this church had contextualization, that is, they wanted to become like their culture. They had contextualization without conviction. They had a witness without holiness. And so this morning, we'll see what Jesus says to a witnessing compromising church. Let's begin in verse 12 as we see Jesus highlight once again a particular aspect of his character that a compromising church desperately needs to hear. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of, <clears throat> these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And so we see the character of Jesus highlighted for us in verse 12. What stands out to me most about this city, the ancient city of Pergamum, where this church lived, was that in the words of one ancient historian, it was, and I quote, given to idolatry 
more than all of Asia. In other words, even the ancients recognized that this was a religious city, but it was full of paganism and full of idolatry. You could say that this city was a religious buffet, right? You could just go down the street and take your choice of any sort of idolatry. It was a smorgasbord of idolatry. And so picture with me, you're in the city of Pergamum, towering some 2,000 feet over the city was a throne-shaped mountain. And it's not a coincidence that Jesus talks about Satan's throne being located in this city. And so towering over the city was this mountain. And this mountain was filled with temples to all sorts of idol gods. The first of note was a temple to a, a, a god by the name of Asclepius. You can see, I think, uh, a picture of this deity so-called behind me. Now you, you can notice that on the guy's staff is a what? It's a snake. And so this was, uh, the, ironically, the god of healing. Asclepius was known and sought after in the ancient world by people who wanted to be healed. And the symbol was that of a snake. We still, even today, use the image of a snake, right, for, our, uh, for similar purposes. And so pilgrims essentially would come to this temple and they would lay on the temple floor that was covered in, what do you think? Snakes. And so you would come and lay down and spend the night in this temple, in this temple covered in snakes in hopes that somehow, ironically, you would be healed, right? And so think, if you will, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have the scene in mind where he says, snakes, why did it have to be snakes, right? And they're just slithering all over the place. Okay, so that's, that's one prominent idol. Another you can see on the next picture is uh, there was a temple to the idol of, of Zeus, right? The, the Greek god Zeus. There you can see a replica, not the real thing, but a replica of what that temple in ancient Pergamum would have looked like. Third, and maybe most significantly, Pergamum was the regional center for emperor worship. You can see there the ruins of the temple uh, that was created in order to worship the, uh, 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 the, the man named Trajan. And so this was a religious city. It was a pagan city. It was a city full of idolatry. And I appreciate the words as we move on from that picture. I appreciate the words of Pastor David Strength as he writes on the remarkable miracle that it was that a church, a gospel-believing church, would live in this place. He writes this. He says, The very existence of this gospel church at Pergamum is a remarkable testimony to the power of the gospel. Don't you think? He says, The church here reminds us that Jesus is building his church, and hell's gates cannot and do not and will not prevail against it. Pioneer missionary C.T. Studd captures, he writes, I think, the boldness that must have been a feature of the church in Pergamum when he said of himself, and I quote, Some people want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells, but I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Friends, that's what this church maybe quite literally was, right? It was under Satan's throne. And yet, to a church like this, Jesus has what, at least in my years initially, are unexpected and ominous words about his character. Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. See, in ancient Pergamum, unlike many other cities in the Roman Empire, that city and, and, and its proconsul, its, its governor, if you will, 
had what was called the right of the sword. The right of the sword. That is, it had the privilege of capital punishment without sort of, sort of having to go up the chain of command, if you will. It could put people to get to death. This city, this government had the right of the sword. And yet Jesus reminds us here that no Roman official has ultimate power over life or death. Who does? He does, right? He is the one with the real power of the sword. In fact, throughout Revelation, when you see this sword that proceeds from Jesus' mouth, when, when you see that other places in the book of Revelation, guess what happens? People die. People die. And so this is a dire warning from King Jesus that whatever this church was doing, and we'll find out here momentarily what they were doing, that whatever it is that some of them were doing, they better knock it off. Because he has the, the, the power of the sword. He has the right of the sword. He can discipline his church. And so we see the character of Jesus highlighted in verse 12. But next we see, well, what comes in most of the letters, Jesus commending his church. So let's take a look at verse 13, Jesus' commendation. He says, I know where you live. Well, where is it? Where do they live? Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful, faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Notice two times he emphasizes, Satan has his throne in this city. Satan lives here, and yet I know where you live. The risen Christ emphasizes three things here in his commendation. Number one, he emphasizes the fact that uh, the the, the pagan world in which they live, he recognizes that. Number two, he recognizes that they were faithful in their verbal witness in that world. And number three, he recognizes their faithful endurance, highlighting a man by the name of Antipas. Antipas. Number one, Jesus begins by commending this church by saying, listen, I know how hard it is to be a Christian where you live. Do you see that? He says, I know where you live. I know that Satan is at work. I know that there are hostile people there. I know that there's persecution. I know it's hard to be a Christian where you live. This is a commendation. Jesus is saying, well done. I, I know what it's like to live in such a place. Yet, you remain true to me. You remain true to my name. You have not renounced your faith in me. Satan's thrown here. Many commentators think that it refers to one of the pagan temples up on the, 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 the throne-like hill. And it, and it likely does. But regardless, what Jesus makes clear is that this is a tough place for Christians to live. He lives there. And I don't think Jesus is talking about his P.O. box, right? He's at work in that city. And notice, brothers and sisters, Jesus commends his followers when we are faithful to him and when we are faithful in our witness specifically to Him, when we are faithful to, to share the gospel and to live out our faith, when it's hard. And so the question then becomes, brothers and sisters, where is it hard for you to be a Christian? Be faithful there. Be faithful there. Maybe it's uh, your spouse and they're an unbeliever and it's, it's difficult for you to live out your Christian faith when your spouse is not. 
Maybe there are members in your immediate family or maybe your extended family, and they're hostile to your faith. They're hostile to your standards. They're hostile to, to your beliefs on issues of morals. And it's hard to go to a family reunion. Friends, Jesus commends us when we're faithful to Him in hard circumstances. And, and, and that faithful endurance that this church um, lived out was uh, embodied in one particular man. Or, what, could you catch his name? Antipas. Antipas, right? Not even in the days of Antipas, who was put to death in that city. Now, tradition says, we don't know this to be sure, but tradition says that Antipas was a doctor. He was a physician. And yet, uh, there were those in the cult of Asclepius, remember the, the god of healing, right? Well, <laughs> you could say that they were sort of at odds, right? They, you could go to the doctor or you could go to the snake. I would go to today. Um, and, so, and so they were sort of at odds with one another, and, and this uh, the cult there accused him of being disloyal to Caesar. And tradition says that he was put, let's see a picture here, that, that he was put into a boiling cauldron in the shape of a bull and literally roasted to death. We don't know that for sure, but we've got some pretty good sources that say that is exactly what happened to that man. So we can move on from that picture, but let me just pose a scenario here, right? To sort of bring it to first century, 21st century uh, life. Let's just say that... Uh, a Wednesday afternoon, you get a one call now. Ding, ding, ding. Please hold for me. You know, you know, right? And my voice comes on, and I say something like, Friends, we really need to pray, because Brother So-and-so from our church was murdered this morning. And Brother So-and-so was murdered this morning at the coffee shop in Sisson Park because he named the name of Jesus. Pray for him and his family. We'll see you on Sunday. That's what happened to this church. One of their own was murdered because of his faithful witness to Jesus. And that church showed up on Sunday morning. How many of us would show up on Sunday morning if that happened? That is a faithful church. They witnessed, despite even one of their own, being murdered. Their culture, like our culture, pushed back against them. The, the culture there in Pergamum, like ours, says, you Christians need to tone it down. You need to adjust your gospel message. You need to be less offensive. And yet this church, like we must, held fast to the gospel message. That people are sinners. That we fall short of the standards of a holy God. And thus incur just and deserved wrath. And we will experience that forever and ever if not God were to act. But the good news of the gospel is that God has acted. He has sent His Son. To live the life of perfect obedience that we absolutely needed. To die for our sins on the cross. Taking our sin and our shame so that we can be reconciled with Him. And that same Jesus rose from the dead to offer new and eternal life. Forgiveness of sins and so much more. If we would simply receive it by faith. Friends, that is the gospel message that this church faithfully proclaimed. Is that the gospel message that we faithfully proclaim? Well, that church was highly commended because of their faithful witness. And yet, Jesus had sharp criticism, starting in verses 14 through 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, 
And so Jesus says there is a group in this church, not everyone, but there are some in that church who were teaching that which he calls the Nicolaitan teaching. They had decided, this little group, that accommodation was needed to reach a hostile culture. They said, well, we just need to become more like the culture in order to reach the culture. Jesus likens their teaching to that of a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Balaam. You can read his story in Numbers chapter 25 and 31 and a little bit before that. But the long and the short of it is that Balaam brought God's judgment on his people by enticing Moabite women to seduce Israel's men into sexual immorality in the worship of idols. And consequently, God judged his people. And Jesus is saying the Nicolaitans are like that. There are some people in that church who are teaching that Christians could go to the temple of Asclepius or go to the temple of Zeus or could go to the temple which worshipped the emperor and they could go and worship these other so-called gods. That's okay. You can do that as a Christian. It's no big deal. There were some in that church that said, you know what, if you go to that temple and you have intimate relations with the temple prostitutes, which was how you worshipped some of the gods in that day, they said, it's no big deal. You're, you know, you're free to do that. And so there were some in this church who were bending on their doctrine and bending on their morality. Idolatry and immorality. And friends, it's no surprise then that if the church in the first century struggled with idolatry and struggled with sexual immorality, that the church in the 21st century would struggle in just the same ways. So friends, let me ask you a question. Can Christians and can a church compromise on matters of idolatry? Well, we shouldn't, but can we? Well, this church did. Can a church compromise on, on matters of immorality? Of course we can. Just as the church in Pergamum caved into its culture's sexual norms, so we can too on a whole host of issues. And yet Jesus clearly takes the matter of sexual behavior seriously in his church. And so friends, we have to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Are we personally compromising on these matters of sexual sin? Are you teaching your children God's good and gracious design for intimacy? Or are you condoning behavior that Jesus condemns? That's what this church was doing. But we can also compromise not only on the issue of immorality, but, but we can compromise on matters of idolatry as well. Unless we think that somehow because we don't have a, 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 a hill full of idol temples that our culture somehow is not given to idolatry. Friends, that is not true. Our culture is filled with idols just as the first century culture was filled with idols. Unless we think that idols are just uh, wood and stone, we have to be reminded that Paul calls desires like greed in Colossians 3, idolatry. In the Old Testament, when God's people trusted in foreign nations, rather than putting their trust in God, God says that's idolatry. And that's why Pastor Tim Keller right, rightly defines all idolatry in this way. He says idolatry is anything more important to you than God. So just ponder, friends. What's more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. He says an idol is, is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, I have to have that. 
then I will feel as if my life has meaning or value or significance. He says there are so many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but, but catch this. But perhaps the best one is worship. Worship. And that's what we do when we worship idol gods. And there are as many gods as there are things in this world, because that's what idolatry is, is worshiping things that are created rather, rather than our creator. In fact, Keller lists several what he would deem 21st century idols. He says, ask yourself this question. Life for me only has meaning or purpose or, 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 or worth if, and then if I am loved and respected by others. He said it could be the idol of approval. Life only has meaning or worth if I have a certain pleasurable experience or I have a particular quality of life. It's the idol of comfort. He says, life only has meaning for me if I'm highly productive. If I get the job done, that's the, the idol of work. He says, life is only meaningful for me if I, if I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom and, and I have wonderful possessions. It's the idol of materialism. He says, life only has meaning for me if, if my children or my parents are happy with me. It's the idol of family. If Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, the idol of relationship. If my political or social cause is making progress, the idol of, of ideology. If I have a particular kind of image or look, if, if I feel good about myself, the idol of, of image, and on and on it goes. And so friends, let's ask, before we condemn this first century church of idolatry, which idols are we bound down to in our hearts? Next, we see Jesus' not only his commendation, not only his criticism, but his call to repent. What shall we do if we find ourselves in a place of compromise, theologically or morally? Well, verse 16, Jesus simply says, repent. Repent, therefore. Stop what you're doing and turn the other way and find your joy and satisfaction in me. Otherwise, what does he say? He says, I will soon come to you and will fight against them, these this, this group of the church, he says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, now you see why Jesus revealed himself to this church as the one who has the double-edged sword. He has the sword, and will he use it, yes or no? Yes, he will use it. I will fight against you. The word in Greek translated here, fight against, it's a strong word. It means I'm going to war. So Jesus, let me just ask you a question. Do we want Jesus to go to war against us? You say no, right? We don't want Jesus to go to war against us. Jesus said, I'm going to go to war against this group in this church unless they repent. The sword in the Old Testament often was an image of literal, literal war, of course. Sometimes it symbolized judgment. Jesus is threatening judgment against his church. Friends, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus love his church enough to discipline it? Yes or no? Yes. Do parents on earth love our children if we discipline them? Yes. So does Jesus. He's saying, this is not in line with the gospel. And so repent. And then notice his, um, his, his promise in verse 17. We see there's a call to respond, and then his, his commitment to those who overcome. In this case, compromise. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So once again, Jesus calls for us to have spiritual ears. He says, you might have ears, but you're not listening. 
Do you know that that happens? Like we have ears and sometimes we hear things. But what happens if we don't take it to heart? Are we listening? No. He says, have ears. Listen to what the Spirit says, not just to the church singular, not just to that church, but to all the churches, plural. Notice two promises here. Number one. He says, to the one who is victorious, I take that over compromise, if they stop compromising in their idolatry and in their immorality, to the one who is victorious, number one, I will give some of the hidden manna. Okay. What's that all about, right? The first promise is that of hidden manna. Now remember in your Bible, where do you see the idea of manna show up? In the Old Testament, right, God's people were wandering in the wilderness because of their rebellion, and God satisfied their physical needs by providing them what? Manna from heaven, right? So manna shows up, it's sustenance, right? It's, it's, it's provision. And Jesus says, if you, you don't give in to compromise, I will give you sustenance, this sort of bread from heaven. I'll satisfy you. And, and I think here, both the idea of hidden manna and the idea of the second promise of the white stone, I believe that both of these images look forward to a future feast. A future feast. You don't have to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 19, which we'll get to in oh, like a year or so, in Revelation chapter 19, we see that there is an image of a great wedding feast. Right? We all know what a wedding feast is, right? There's a union of a man and a, and a woman, and they enter into a covenant, and then what do we do? We have a party, right? There's a feast, and there's food involved, but uh, typically, uh, in order to go to the feast and the wedding, you have to get something in the mail. What is that thing called? An invitation, right? It's, it's an invitation, okay? So there's a feast with food, and you have to get in. Okay, so keep that in mind. Jesus, in, in chapter 19, calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. It will happen one day in the future after Christ's return. So he says, first of all, I will give you hidden manna. I will give you this food to eat, and it's, it's hidden. It hasn't been revealed yet. It will be revealed in the future at that supper. Now, now, now catch the irony here. There were Christians in this church who were tempted to go to a different type of feast, an idol feast, right? And the Nicolaitans said, you can go, and you can go to this temple where you would often have parties with food and meat. You would kill the animal, sacrifice it and worship to the idol. You would eat it, and then you would go have intimacy with the prostitute. That's what would happen. And to these Christians who were tempted to do that, Jesus says, listen, there's something better than idol meat on the menu, right? I can give you something better. I've got hidden manna. But then there's a, another promise. It's of a white stone. What's it do with that? White stone. Okay, so here's why I have to admit that in, in ancient history, in the first century, there were many different uses of, of stones. The culture used stones for lots of different things. Even the use of white stones for lots of different things. So I'm not, it can be dogmatic here, but here's what I, what I think. Here's what fits best in my mind. Oftentimes, it was very widespread that if you were invited to one of these idol festivals, right, to worship the idol, that you were given a white stone. And the white stone would essentially serve as your invitation as well as your ticket into the feast. And so if that's the case, it's like Jesus is saying, if you refuse to compromise, church, I will give you a ticket to an even better feast. 
an eternal one. There'll be heaven and manna. I will be there. Jesus like calls himself the, the true bread from heaven. I will be there. It's a wedding feast, right? And you will get in. I'm offering you something better. But then notice, he says, I will give that person a white stone with a new name. Did you catch that detail? With a new name written on it, and it's known to only the one who receives it. Here again, we're not entirely sure whose name is written on the stone that the overcomer receives. Well, it, it could be Jesus' name. In fact, in Revelation 19, at the image of Jesus' return to the earth, we are told that Jesus himself has a hidden name. So it could be that we have on this stone the name of Jesus. However, and I think maybe more likely, it could be that this is a, a new name for us, that we sort of get a new identity, if you will, a new, a new character. As oftentimes in the Old Testament, you see people change names because they became new people, right? And so if, if the new name is ours, then the picture that Jesus is painting is that Christians for all eternity will have a new name and will have a new resurrected body and will uh, live on the new heavens and the new heavens and the new, and the new earth for all eternity. All will be made new, as we see in chapter 21. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to close with song. So I'm going to ask our singers to come in a moment. But I want us to do this. I would like to lead us in a short time of reflection and prayer. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me here momentarily, and I'm just going to ask some questions. And I'm going to let you spend some time along with me with the Lord, pondering these truths. And then we'll sing a song of dedication to the Lord, giving ourselves entirely to Him. So would you pray with me as our uh, musicians come forward to, to close this song? Lord, Lord, we thank you that your word is true, and we thank you that your word to us, even the words that in our minds seem to be harsh, that when you speak to us, it is all of grace, that you love us, and you reveal yourself to us, and you reveal more of who your son is, and you reveal more of who we are so that we can experience true joy in being right with you, so that we can have abundant Life, which Christ said that he came to give us. And so, Father, as we ponder this morning your word, I pray that we would, uh, that we would just uh, be open to what your spirit wants to say. And so we'll begin, church, this morning by pondering the reality that Jesus is the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. And so let's pray for a moment asking us that we would have a bigger and broader and more full picture of who our King Jesus is, and that we would both fear Him and fall over Him in worship. Let's pray for that. Jesus, help us to see you for who you are and not for who we want you to be. Jesus, you know where we live. You know where we live, and that is an encouragement. So spend some time thanking him that he knows your situation and ask him to help you to be faithful in those places. Maybe we're to, to live out a Christian life or to be witness.
Jesus, thank you that you know where we live, and you want us to be faithful in the midst of it. So uh, give us grace that we might be faithful. Jesus, we ask also that you would help us now as we ponder areas of our life where we compromise with you. Be that in the idolatry of our hearts, or the immorality or morality of our lives. And so take a moment to ask Jesus to reveal to you the idols that you might be tempted to worship and compromise. The areas of morality where maybe we're not aligned with his life.